1: A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
2: On today's program, we'll learn about the Revolutionary War veterans buried in Wilkes-Barre's historic Hollenbeck Cemetery. We'll sit down with the Luzerne County manager to get a picture of the budget that's under consideration. And we'll hear about singer Glenn Campbell's very public struggle with Alzheimer's disease from his widow, Kim. Some of the early residents of the city of Wilkes-Barre are still together these days, resting in the Hollenbeck Cemetery next to River Street and Wilkes-Barre General Hospital. The cemetery was founded in 1855 by George Hollenbach after the downtown graveyard got too crowded. Each year, Wilkes-Barre City Councilman Tony Brooks, who is also on the board of the Hollenback Cemetery Association, gives a fall tour that is usually centered around a certain group or theme. This year, Brooks told the stories of the veterans of the American Revolution
3: who are interred at the cemetery. You know, I always think it's important to remember our veterans, regardless of what wars they are. And as a historian, I always like to go back to the very beginning, the beginning of Wilkes-Barre, who were the first settlers. And undoubtedly, because we had a Revolutionary War battle here, the Battle of Wyoming, there are numerous Revolutionary War heroes. So we have 13 that are buried in Hollenbach Cemetery. And what's fascinating about them, they all got moved here. The cemetery wasn't founded until 1855, so these gentlemen were at private plots, the old burial ground where wilkes City Hall is today, and they all got moved here. So I always wonder what the travel was like up North River Street in the 1860s. Probably bumpy. It was certainly bumpy. It was actually, well, it wasn't a paved road back then, so it would have been a very bumpy ride.
2: I know you're not covering a lot of, of the others who are buried here today, but there are many, many influential figures who are here, and you've highlighted them in the past. For people who are casual listeners. Who are some of the real superstars who are up in the cemetery?
3: You know, the very complete beginning of the anthracite industry is buried in this cemetery. So you have names like Butler, Hollenbach, and Jacob Sis. These are the guys who are on the ground floor of creating the anthracite industry that were able to recruit all of our ancestors to come here work in the coal mines. What I, have, what I love to explain to people is somebody had to be the first So who was the first guy to dig down and create a shaft to pull out and extract the black diamonds that would fuel the Industrial Revolution, change the way America operates and the way we heat our homes for 150 years?
2: Not only that, but we have people who are giants of retail, architecture, all kinds of people up here, right?
3: Well, it's true. When it comes to retail, you have F.M. Kirby who went into business with the Woolworths to create the largest five and dime retail marketing chain in America.
2: You also talk about the the status of the cemetery occasionally and how people looked around here and decided where they wanted to rest for eternity.
3: Well, status, you know, we all like to show off in life and some people like to show off in death. So. For example, you will have the Hollenbacks and the Cunninghams will have magnificent obelisks to them, which was the height of status in death. You also have placement. Certain families have better views than other families uh, in the cemetery as well. And then, of course, you have mausoleums. It's kind of like building a house for eternity and death and they're beautiful mausoleums uh, in, in Hollenbeck Cemetery.
2: You've traveled the world, and I know when you go around the world, you go to cemeteries, right?
3: I do, you know, there's a name for us called the taphophile, and uh, when I go to Paris, there are public cemeteries in Paris that were created after the French Revolution, um, and there are four main cemeteries in Paris, and they're magnificent. And there are tourist attractions that people do go to them. If you go to Rome, people go to the catacombs. There are beautiful cemeteries all over, all over London as well. And a lot of American tourists will go on them, of course, to see a famous Americans that are buried there, but also famous uh, celebrities, uh, heroes, industrialists, uh, businessmen of that particular city.
2: Brooks gave the attendees on the tour a brief history of Hollenbeck Cemetery.
3: In the very beginning, people had family cemeteries, so, at the end of Ross Street, where the old hazard wire ropes are, was the Ross Family Cemetery. Hollenbach Family Cemetery was right across the street where General Hospital is built, and the family kind of just flipped land. They gave land to General Hospital, which should be called Hollenbach Hospital, like Nesbitt Hospital is on the west side, because they are really the primary movers and shakers of that of that hospital when it was founded. But this cemetery, when it was, established in 1855 was out in the country, past the northern border of the borough of Wooksbury, was that ended at North Street. Wooksbury was at that time just North Street to South Street, Front Street to Back Street. Front Street becomes River Street, Back Street becomes Canal Street, and then later Pennsylvania Avenue. And that little plot was the village of Wooksbury. And the original cemetery was on East Market Street across from Genetti's at Washington Street which is where City Hall is today. And I think that might explain politics in Wooksbury because we're built on top of a cemetery. What happened was people kept dying and you can't stop people from dying, right? The city actually, or the borough at the time, passed an ordinance saying no more people can be buried in the cemetery. They forgot to tell them that you can't die. So you needed to put them somewhere. And so on the generosity of the Hollenbacks. We moved out here and slowly started over a 20 year period, extract bodies and reinter them in the city cemetery, which is still owned by the city. They start to move the bodies um, out into the countryside. And this road was the main road to Pittston. It used to be called the Pinston Plank Road. It was a wooden boardwalk that connected Wooksbury to Pittston. And in the old days, families would come out here to have lunch with their dead relatives. It was a very Victorian thing to do back in the old days, to come out on a Sunday and visit your relatives uh, and have a picnic for them, too. And if you really look at it, it is a Victorian city for the dead. It's a magnificent place. All right, so we'll embark on the 13 Revolutionary War veterans that are buried in this cemetery. And we're first going to start with these guys. Captain Joseph Davis and Lieutenant William Jones. Of course, you can tell they're Polish, right? <laughs> two little, two, two Welshmen here, who, um, who have had an interesting life after death because they get moved so much. These gentlemen come with the Sullivan Expedition. So, if you remember, if your history at the Battle of Wyoming, there was a response by General Washington after the battle to essentially annihilate and devastate the Iroquois Indians, who were, who were siding on the side of the Tories during the battle. So, General John Sullivan um, gathers men in Easton, and they build a road to Wooksbury, which today still exists. It's called 115. But the, the primary General, that road was the ability for artillery to move up in this Sullivan expedition that comes up. And on the way in Laurel Run, two soldiers with the Pennsylvania 11th were murdered by members of the the Six Nations by the Iroquois and if you go to Laurel Run today you'll see there is a red marker does anyone picture this if you're coming over the top of Giants of and coming back down the other side you'll see the marker so they get they get killed on St. George's Day in April of 1779 and then they get moved to the Wilkes-Barre Barrow Ground now that's the burial ground where wilkes City Hall is today. And then you'll notice they get moved again. So they got one trip and then a second trip uh, comes up here in 1867. And that is when they're finally exhuming and re the majority of the uh, bodies that are at the old Wooksbury Burial Ground where City Hall is today.
2: Brooks called attention to Revolutionary War veterans who are known for more than just their military careers.
3: What I really like to say about Jesse Fell, and the butlers who are buried over there, and Matthias Hollenbach and his son and family right over there, is right in this spot. You are standing in the whole nucleus of the first entrepreneurs of the anthracite industry. The entire industry is created by these gentlemen. And if these three, four, five, Plots weren't here because they didn't do what they discovered and found it and experimented with. None of you would be here today if it wasn't for Jesse Fell's and his coal experiment in 1808 at the Old Fell Tavern at Northampton and Washington Street, where he successively burned coal in an open grate that would change from wood to coal and how we heated our homes. We wouldn't be here today. If Zebulon Butler, father of Lord Butler, grands- grandfather of John Lord Butler, the Butler Mine, which we all heard of, didn't mine the coal with, with Baltimore investors and create a Baltimore Coal Company that shipped coal down to Baltimore, we wouldn't be here today. If Hollenbach, Matthias Hollenbach and his son George Hollenbach, buying up all the land in Plains and Parsons and the Heights and creating the Brick Bre- Breaker, which was at Witchway Boulevard, then, cana- then Canal, at coal street we wouldn't be here today if this guy didn't find find a great way to use it for our homes if the industrialists of philadelphia didn't find great ways to use it for the industrial revolution we'd still be farmers where does anthracite come from here only here way better than bituminous coal completely different kind of coal than this that we had, the black diamonds that could fuel the Industrial Revolution, that changed the way the world made stuff. (laughs) I have this little saying I like to say. All the Industrial Revolution did, which was the best revolution of any revolution, more revolutionary than the American Revolution, the French Revolution, or the Spanish-Latin American revolutions in Venezuela, was the Industrial Revolution. It completely changed the way we live. If you think about it, If you have fruit in February, that's because of the Industrial Revolution. All of you on cell phone, you're you're texting right there. That thing in your hand is is there because of the Industrial Revolution. Unbelievable. And it's all these guys here that played a pivotal pioneering role in it that then led to great ships of immigrants coming to the Wyoming Valley for new economic opportunities, which by and large is Our great grandparents, great grandparents, or even our grandparents—fascinating. But first, he had to fight a revolution against King George III with the Bucks County militia to win that revolution to get to the Industrial Revolution. So across here is the Butlers' resting place of both Colonel Zebulon Butler and his son Lord Butler, and the wives of Zebulon Butler. He had he had three wives. Lord Butler had one wife, uh, Polly Pierce, like in Pierce Street. I always like to take a little joke about the very beginning of nepotism. We all know there's this pervasive thing, entity that evolves politics in wilkes in the Wyoming Valley and the first known case of nepotism is when Zebulon Butler appointed his son as the quartermaster of Fort wilkes We've been doing it ever since, particularly on school boards. <laughs> so who is Zebulon Butler and his son Lord Butler? So Zebulon Butler is born in Lyme, Connecticut. He is part of the Susquehanna Company that moves here in 1769. If you were a member of the Susquehanna Company, you bought a share for the right to own a piece of land in wilkes in the Wyoming Valley. And they created five settling townships, Wilkesbury, Hanover, Plymouth, Kingston, and Pittston. So they're the first five townships. They eventually get to 17 and they all hug the Susquehanna going up to the New York state line. And this entity becomes what we call in history, Westmoreland County. And it's a Connecticut county because that's who the settlers are. And they get bogged down in a land claim war with the Pennsylvania authorities. Eventually it's settled by Pennsylvania uh, and Wooksbury finally gets incorporated and in, in built. Uh, Zebulon Butler is the founder of the Connecticut 24th Regiment, which was founded on October 17, 1775. That regiment still exists today. And you know what it's called today? 109th, any, any, anybody here remember the 109th? My grandfather was a Lieutenant in the 109th. It is the second oldest continuous military regiment in the country still and still active service to the country founded by Zebulun Butler. So if you heard about the Battle of Wyoming, Zebulon Butler was late coming to the Battle of Wyoming. The second commander of the Connecticut Regiment is Nathan Dennison. You might go to his house over uh, over in Forty Fort. And the third commander of the 24th Connecticut which now becomes a militia for Luzerne County is Matthias Hollenbach. They fight in the Battle of Wyoming. Lord Butler uh, is a young Boy at the time as well. It's interesting, Lord Butler's son is right behind you, John Lord Butler, and he becomes the ninth commander of the 109th.
2: Cemetery namesakes George and Matthias Hollenbach
3: had a colorful history as explained by Brooks. So here's Matthias Hollenbach. He was in this battle between Connecticut and Pennsylvania. Matthias Hollenbach actually is not a Connecticut person. There was a group of guys who also came up to defend. Connecticut against Pennsylvania because they had a gripe about Pennsylvania authorities and they were a group called the Paxton Boys. And Matthias Hollenbach comes up with Captain Lazarus Stewart to get away from Pennsylvanians and to take ownership of really Hanover Township and to bolster the Connecticut claim. And Matthias Hollenbach was one of those gentlemen coming up from Lancaster, Lebanon County today. If you go down to Paxton Township, you'll see it on Route 81. Matthias Holmgren ends up being an ensign in an independent uh, Connecticut company. There's the 24th Regiment, and then there's these Wyoming independent companies that are also formed during the Battle of of Wyoming. Um, he also also goes off with the Continental troops and serves in the Battle of Trenton and Princeton and Brandywine um, as well. Rushes home when they get word that the Indians and Tories in upstate New York are to come down the Susquehanna uh, to um, to the Battle of Wyoming, survives the Battle of Wyoming. Understandably, you read in the the, uh, history books that he um, takes his clothes off, they're shooting at him as he's swimming nakedly across the Susquehanna River, Uh, comes out of the water, helps feed the remaining survivors that were straggling behind before they all evacuate the valley uh, after uh, the battle. when he comes back to Connecticut, he builds a house where Bartokowski's is today. It's actually Sardoni Art Gallery now, uh, and I give a plug for it, please go see it. It's a wonderful, wonderful gallery. He builds a house there and starts a mercantile store line of uh, stores that hug the Susquehanna River going all the way up to the New York border. So he's kind of like the Al Boscovs of his day, a long time ago. Um, at the same time, he buys up coal land uh, up and down the valley. He and his son George buy so much land that they become the richest landowners in Northeastern Pennsylvania and the richest people in Northeastern Pennsylvania. So much so that he is the richest man when he dies in 1829 and leaves his inheritance to his son George Matson Hollenbach. This is I always love this. This middle name of his Matson is son of Matthias. I also like to say in death, men like to show off, right? You ever notice how guys will show off with their cars or, you, or anyone will show off with their architecture of their house? Well, in death, you show off as well. And look at the size of his obelisk. Uh, a big statement you're making uh, in death. And you'll notice they are kind of competing with one, <laughs> one another, too. I think I counted some 200 obelisks in Hollenbeck Cemetery. And then, of course, the other status symbol is a mausoleum.
2: For more information on tours given by Councilman Tony Brooks of the Historical Landmarks of the City, be sure to visit the Wilkes-Barre Preservation Society on Facebook. You're listening to a special edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to special edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: Luzerne County's 2018 budget was recently unveiled to the public. The spending plan is 141.1 million, and includes a proposed tax increase of 2% for county homeowners. Big-ticket items include incarceration and pensions. Luzerne County's manager, David Pedry, gave us details about the plan this week.
4: In our budget this year, about about 30% of our budget is our uh, is our prison, and you're going to have that time and time again. But it really comes down to is just the criminal justice system and how it works. So we're doing a bunch of different things on this. We worked on a prison population task force, which has been uh, pretty successful on identifying individuals that are being held by the judges, that are being uh, waiting for for hearings, and then moving them back to state quicker. We're looking at people with with a large amount of bails. Why are they having a large amount of bails, and what are we doing to address those things? The prison has expenses. A lot of it is we have a uh, a, a building that was built in the 1980s. It's eight floors, and it sits in a building that was built right after the Civil War, uh, right here in Luzerne County. And That is our Luzerne County Correctional Facility.
2: I have heard in the past when I've gone to meetings that this makes it especially challenging for corrections officers because of the layout of the prison. And then people have said, well, would it be good to go in the direction of a new prison, and we all know that when we hear new prison, we hear construction. Yeah, we we see in front of our eyes many, many, many dollar signs, and of course uh, people in the past looked at that juvenile center and all the the hullabaloo that followed the construction of a different one. Will the day come when it just absolutely has to be done?
4: I think the day will come, and the question is when, and how many more years can we sneak out of this uh, correctional facility? We are continuing to put money into this facility, obviously we had the elevator incident with our tragic death of uh, Christopher Moles, our, our corrections officer, in July of 2017. These are all things that come into play here. This is an older facility. However, I want to be very clear with the public and be very clear with you: it is safe. It is secure. We have some great people working um, in our corrections uh, every single day. But we have eight separate floors, which means eight separate prisons, which have to be staffed, and and then everybody has to be fed, everybody has to be clothed, everybody has to have uh, access to showers, recreation. And those things are expensive. And listen, we're not here to complain about those things, but that's what we have here. And a lot of that also ties into uh, a lot of what I'm looking at right now with the opioid epidemic.
2: And and how has that changed corrections? I imagine only for the worse. And when I've gone to meetings as well, they always talk about how drugs and alcohol seem to be at the root of many, many, many people being incarcerated. And I've heard like, I don't know, 70, 80 percent. So... I would think with the opioid problem, this has only uh, made the situation much worse.
4: Oh, that, that, listen, I'm, I'm a former prosecutor. I spent seven years at the DA's office. Ninety-five percent of the people I came in contact were with had a drug problem, made a mistake, uh, something along those lines. Five percent of the people who were just horrible, bad people. I would say that right off. But ninety-five percent of the people that I personally came in contact with, and I think that number is still true today. Luzerne County is entering into a litigation against the opioid manufacturers and right. the opioid and the opioid distributors. When I prepared. That number I came up with seven million dollars from Corrections just off the top of my head sitting down with our director of Corrections in the 2017 budget very, very easily without even trying. And you, you add that $7 million plus $6 million for children and youth. And that's really what the most upsetting thing is. How many times does our children and youth caseworkers have to go out for families that are affected by opioid abuse?
2: In other words, if, if this problem were, were somehow solved, you would see millions of dollars oh. in a, a reduction of incarceration, right? And, well, and, and expenses. Doubt. So when you, when you sit there as a former prosecutor and now somebody who manages the county what are we doing wrong here
4: if you look at the opioid lawsuit a lot of it is the distribution of pills and the pills become addictive and the addiction then turns to a harder drug so it turns to heroin um, and once people start getting on this heroin, it's very, very hard to get off it. And that's what becomes the burglaries, the the holding up a, a, a liquor store or something along those lines. And uh, you hear time and time again, these stories are horrible. But what we should be doing is putting our money in treatment, put our money in uh, um, in education, and catching these people before it turns to that point.
2: But it, it seems to me that we've been trying to do those things for years, and well, at least with the educational component and perhaps the treatment. But, Dave, you know, treatment's expensive, and it doesn't always work. And I think a lot of people— Look down their nose at that, they say, Oh, that's not prison, that's treatment, and that's not a punishment. And so I don't know, I, I just see these things as if you turn that key. We would be in a, a much better place right now,
4: without a doubt. Without a doubt, the opioid epidemic and and our, and our drug and alcohol abuse in Luzerne County, especially in northeastern Pennsylvania as a whole, across the state, it's it, it's very very difficult, very very expensive, and how we work with that every single day.
2: All right, and uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the other expenses that you incur. And in the past, there what there seemed to be, if I recall this correctly, a tendency for many of the past administrations of Luzerne County, whether you know, I'm going back to the commissioner of government to borrow to fill these budget gaps. Tenden, and that, it,
4: tendency is a nice word. Uh, I believe it's it, <laughs> it seemed to be looking at where my the numbers are right now. It seemed to be almost mandatory. Every year they were borrowing uh, 15, 20, 30 million dollars and sometimes horrible rates. The, the 2008 borrowing that we just were able to refinance uh, this year, they borrowed 20 million dollars six million of that went into what's called bond insurance which is they don't even we don't even have that money they just hold on to that money and so we really borrowed 14 million dollars at variable rates while we're paying we're paying the rates on 20 million dollars and it was a horrible deal that we are now we are now in the process of refinancing but that's just what happened in 2012 when Rule came into to um to play here, Luzerne County was over $420 million in debt. As we stand here today in uh, 2017, we are just over $300 million in debt. Now, listen, you're not going to get a lot of county executives uh, proud of the fact that they're over $300 million in debt. Okay, I, I fully understand that. But what I am proud of is that we've made huge strides. Over $100 million of this debt's been paid off in just under five years.
2: So how did you get by on not relying on borrowing? I mean, how did you get that train to stop?
4: Well, that first county council in 2012 had to make some some major decisions, um, as well as uh, the county management in, in that in that period. Really, what it came down to right sizing the government. When I started in the DA's office 2004, we had over 2,000 employees working for the county. As we stand here today uh, in 2017, we've just uh, over 1,500 employees. So, right sizing the government, doing things the right way, looking at things like consolidating services. You know, our, our operations division had came up to me the other day and said, "Hey, listen, if we buy." All of these air filters for our buildings. I bet we can save some money. So oh, that's a great idea. Don't don't buy them all separately. It's a, it's it's common sense, really. He said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna do it." We saved twenty four thousand dollars, and it's picking up those dimes and nickels and doing things the right way that get us there. In twenty fifteen, we ended a surplus of six point seven million dollars. In 20, 2016, we ended a surplus of one point three million dollars. We're getting there. We're turning a corner. I I I'm not sure if I got our whole body around that corner just yet, but we got our foot out, and we're trying to do what we can financially. It was
2: 1,500 people, still too many.
4: If you ask me you start, it's getting to the point though, Sue, that you're going to start talking about customer service. Uh, it's going to start talking about services look at the size of Luzerne County. 322,000 people and an area the size of the state of Rhode Island can fit within Luzerne County. So the county of Luzerne provides services to all of those individuals every single day. So 1,500 people, listen, it sounds like a a large number, but when you look at the size and what we do every single day in the county, you started talking about what are we doing for customer service, and that's a major issue with me.
2: Yeah, and I'd like you to talk about some of the individuals who work in Luzerne County. Everybody has this impression in their mind that they're living high off the hog and they are a bunch of fat cats and so on and so forth. But I was there the other day and I heard, um, uh, some, some salaries that are, are not extraordinary. And I believe some of them may even be listed in a story in the paper today that you have people who are making in the, you know, the mid twenties sure. over there, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. A lot of people are not getting rich at those jobs.
4: The, the county, you know, I was listening on my way over here, uh, I always turn into WYLK News Radio. Uh, A little plug for you there. Thank Uh, you. And I was into one of your sponsors and it was uh, ZipRecruiter. And ZipRecruiter was saying, hey, listen, how do you find people? How do you get people in? How do you retain those individuals? And this is an issue that we have in the county. We're always looking for the best. We're always looking for the brightest. Some people still think that it was the commissioner days uh, where uh, you had to know somebody to get a job at the county. And listen, those days are are over. I encourage people to go to our website, uh, LuzerneCounty.org, and apply for jobs. But some of these jobs, you know, they're not high-paying jobs. We just hired five deputy sheriffs at $28,000 each a year. Now, those are five highly trained, very important individuals. Uh, You know, those individuals serve our papers, protect us here at the courthouse, provide prisoner transport, a a slew of duties that the sheriff does every single day, and um, $28,000 would be their salary. There's not a ton of county employees making six figures. I mean, like, I think off the top of my head, you know, a very, very small number. Our division heads make less than six figures. The the county worker is there because they want to be there. What I have to tell each of our orientation classes is that they're there because they want to do good. They want to do something that's right for their community. Um, and it's definitely not the salaries that draw people into Luzerne County. Uh, but I think it's the—I'd um, like to think— it's the environment that keeps them there.
2: Every time you announce a, a budget, David, the people are always waiting to know what their tax increase will be. They never hear about a tax decrease. Does that ever happen anywhere in the country?
4: Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, in 2029, the, can- the county looks to be out of debt in 2029. And I said, I'd love to be the county manager then because, man, that's going to be a good day.
2: <laughs> so do you, think, do you think in that the future, in tw- and it's so far away, the day would ever come where you say, yep, your taxes will go down? two percent this year
4: listen 2020 listen and, and uh, the county's funding for our uh, for our debt service so this is all borrowings that have been done in by the commissioners in the past it's 20 percent of our budget 20, 26 million dollars a year 20, twenty cents on every dollar goes out uh, to uh, to their debt service every year
2: well and again once that stops that you would think there would be uh, some relief for the marvelous taxpayer now when you announced this budget the other day you told the people the news that they might see an increase right? sure yeah. And that
4: increase that is? That's 2% increase. Okay. Uh, so on every county parcel that's worth $100,000, you're looking at an do- extra dollar a month. And it's not something that we do lightly. Uh, and it's not something that we do flippantly or, or or quickly or anything along those lines. We have spent hours um, in a uh, conference room with our budget and finance people. I saw our budget and finance team more often than I saw my family for the month of September. Uh, but we uh, were able to, to come up with this 2% because, not because we think that we, we can't do it, but because this is what we need in order to continue to move the county forward.
2: Okay. And when you when you are formulating that that kind of increase, obviously, you know, immediately when it does come out, you will be you you'll be criticized yeah. because anytime taxes go up, the people they don't really think about what you just said, the the amount. They think about there they go again, why why can't they and this is the question we hear all the time, so I'm going to ask it to you. Sure. Why can't you cut more things instead of raising people's taxes
4: i fully appreciate that now here's what i would say we've cut and we've cut and we've cut and we talked about how we cut our our workforce down from 2000 down to 1500 and we're continuing to cut everywhere we possibly can but things go up just like anybody who runs a household knows things go up this year in 2018 we have $700,000 increases for health care okay that's there's nothing we can do on that that's an increase for our health care that's the, the amount of money that we have to pay there's a million dollar increase for our pension fund the pension fund is not something that uh, I'm that I'm thrilled to be able to put general fund monies in there. But the situation is is that we've made a promise to those individuals that there will be a pension and that they will continue to pay into that pension. That when they retire, they'll be able to collect that pension. And we made a promise to those individuals, and we have to upkeep that promise. This was really a um, a, a reaction, Sue. To losing those employees. Good news, we cut payroll. We cut those 500 employees. Bad news, those individuals paid 5% of their salaries into the pension fund every single year. So now, without that 5%, percent we got to come up with that extra funding to get in there. Our pension is currently about 75% funded, and that's pretty good. And we don't want to go anywhere near uh, – uh, we don't want to go anywhere less than that. I sit on the retirement board, and it's not something that uh, we take lightly. You know, In addition to that, we have $600,000 um, in, in union-guaranteed uh, contractual raises as well as merit uh, for non-rep individuals. So I'm at 2.3, and I didn't even do anything yet.
2: Well, I, I I see your issue here, and I see your trouble. Now, you have these contractually obligated raises for employees, and then I saw some of the the birds come, come out for merit raise increases. Sure. And uh, what is the methodology on, on the evaluation for employees uh, for merit raises, and what is the, uh, the range of raises?
4: Well, we're looking at... Uh a maximum of three percent for any non-rep individual, and we're, this it would be a total in the budget of 2018 of 163 thousand dollars total. So you're looking at a complete budget of just over $140 million. We're talking about, uh, for non-rep individuals, $163,000. Now listen, here's what comes down to the evaluations of the merit. I could very easily come in and say, everybody gets 3%. If you work for us on January 1st of 2018, congratulations, here's your race. But that's not how we should do things. That's not how our corporation should run. That's not how we should be working here. What we should be doing is rewarding our good employees, and the ones who aren't carrying the water need to know this is not, this this is this will not be there for you now listen our represented individuals they get raises every single every single year but our non representative individuals didn't get raises from 2008 to 2016. there was no raise in 2017 and now we're looking to do a three percent raise based upon merit in 2018 so sue I, you know those individuals i get that understanding but i'm going to stand up for our people here and i'm going to say hey listen when it comes down to non-rep individuals when it comes down to anybody if somebody works at a job for 10 years and you get two raises in that 10 years based upon merit would you be happy with that that's what we're giving our non-rep individuals i understand it's tight out there i fully understand that but we're talking about three percent when it's based upon people who do a good job as based upon merit not just whether you're not whether you're working for us or not we're doing things the right way for the first time
2: how is that evaluation done
4: so we'll review the evaluation with our department heads um it's a comprehensive evaluation with uh human resources it goes to the division head level which is the the eight division heads uh Right, directly below me, and I'll have the final say on that determination. And we're going to review what they did in their in their year. How did they hire? What were their accomplishments? Did they stay within their budget? How did we work these things? All those things come into play. We got to run this thing like a corporation to a certain extent. People say governments uh, should be run like a business, and you know what? I, I disagree with a lot of that statement. But there are certain things that have to be done. We have to look at every single contract, and we have to support our individuals, and we have to do. Um, specific job evaluations. It can't just be go along, get along.
2: Luzerne County Manager David Pedry recently discussed the proposed budget for 2018. County Council will have the final say on the matter in December. There is a budget work session after the council meeting on Tuesday, October 24th, which starts at 6 in the Luzerne County Courthouse, and a hearing on Monday, October 30th in the Hazel Township Municipal Building at 6 p.m., you are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: Country music icon Glenn Campbell didn't disappear from the public eye after doctors diagnosed him with Alzheimer's disease in 2011. The entertainer continued to perform, and even allowed a lot of documentary about his life called All Be Me to be Created. Campbell died earlier this year, and his widow, Kim, has decided to share her experiences as a caregiver. Her blog is careliving.org. She spoke to a forum in Scranton this week and shared her insights with us. It affects so many millions of people, so many families. It's it's such a
5: devastating diagnosis, and um, it's a difficult disease to navigate. It last for so many years takes such a toll on the family so I'm just honored to be able to be a part of the Alzheimer's community and to help in any way I
2: can. Yeah and uh, your husband Glenn Campbell was in the the public spotlight and when you got a spotlight on you sometimes it's it's hard to hide right?
5: Right and uh, that was really never his goal. He's always been really open and honest about his life and the different challenges he's faced and you know he struggled with alcoholism uh, back in the early 80s and with the, God's help, he overcame that and was, you know, I think an example to a lot of people. And now to be faced with Alzheimer's and to do what he did, inviting, you know, filmmakers to come along and actually share his journey with millions of people. I'm just so so proud of him for, you know, raising awareness and helping caregivers know they're not alone. Families know they're not alone. And bringing the disease out of the shadows and helping destigmatize it.
2: When uh, this was, was happening to Glenn, uh, who, who knew first, Kim, that something was, was afoot? Was it you? Was it Glenn? Was it somebody else in the family? Was it the physician? I think Glenn knew something was wrong. He wasn't feeling right. You know,
5: a lot of times people early on become depressed or have some anxiety, and they don't know why. So we were, we were um, dealing with that. And then, I, of course, I noticed it, but as people age, there are certainly, you know, normal memory lapses that we all experience, and it's hard to know if there's something going on or if it's just the normal aging process. In retrospect, you can look back, and we could all see now, that those memory lapses were part of this disease.
2: When you actually uh, received the, uh, a physician's diagnosis uh, of Alzheimer's, what was that like for, for you as a, as a couple? Because obviously you feel for the other individual in a partnership, but then I would imagine you think to yourself, wow, this is also going to be life-changing for me as well.
5: Yeah, when we got the diagnosis, The doctor told us we were sitting there together, and as his wife, I didn't want to let on that it scared me, you know, for his sake. So I just sat there quietly and listened, and so did he. He really took it with a lot of grace. I inside was panicked. I really didn't know much about Alzheimer's at all, but um, I had a million questions and I had to begin the process of educating myself about the disease. And the more I learned, the the more frightened I became. You have to accept it because there's no way to slow the disease or stop it at this point.
2: And I I think that your story and, and Glenn's story illustrates beautifully one thing that is a truth, and that is that even after a diagnosis like this, which you know is, is it's difficult to hear, that life life can go on. You don't have to stop your life right there. And uh, you and you and Glenn uh, certainly kept moving forward. And he uh, continued to uh, perform and and uh, put out uh, beautiful music works even in the aftermath of this. So it doesn't have to be the end. It just has to be, I suppose. Uh, a very definitive change
5: yeah uh, you're absolutely right in the early middle stages you can still function and live a fulfilling life you just gradually need to keep garnering more support around yourself to um, compensate for for your weaknesses but to support your strengths and you know that's that's the gift, I guess, if there is a gift in alzheimer's is that you you know you have a long journey and you can prepare for it as you go and that's what we did we We embraced each other and and had that those beautiful years together to um, cherish and um even you know even going into the late stages, we still learned to appreciate each other and and um you know you you start learning to live in the moment. Not focused on the past, not focused on the future, but just to to cherish every moment that you have together as a family.
2: And uh, certainly when uh, you're in the public spotlight, you you know, you, people look to you, and certainly in the case of Glenn, I mean, here's somebody that uh, across many, many generations, you know, people feel like they have a little part of Glenn Campbell because the the songs that he did while big radio hits seem so intimate to people. You know, there there are certain songs of his that, you know, you really feel his, his emotions in them, and, you know, the back catalog, like, uh, you know, Wichita Lineman and Gentle on My Mind and then that song Ghost on the Canvas which I think is, is so moving. How did that help people reach back out to him and, and show their, their love and, and admiration and maybe share with you Kim that listen uh, maybe their wife or, or their husband was in a similar situation and they were able to reach back so to speak as he had reached them so many times.
5: Well the doctors told us that continuing to do music was really healthy for Glenn's brain and I know they're finding that in research now that um, it, it activates all the different regions of the brain at, at once and, and stimulates new neurons and, and connections. So, you know, people have, have told us that he inspired them to integrate music more into their therapies. Additionally, you know, songs that were in the film, like I'm Not Gonna Miss You, that Glenn and his, his producer Julian Raymond co-wrote, was nominated for an oscar and won a grammy for best country song that song especially really resonated with caregivers because it it talked about the disease from his perspective it was like he was saying to me don't worry about me i'm not going to miss you you're the one that's going to have the sadness of and the heartbreak and the tears and the struggle but don't at least don't worry about me because i'm going to be fine so um his music continues to inspire in fact He's also nominated for a CMA award on November 8th. I'm going to go to that award show here in Nashville for a duet that he did with Willie Nelson. Uh, Ain't it funny how time flips away? <laughs> so, I mean, even even now his music is still touching people. And that song was actually recorded um, right before he recorded I'm Not Going to Miss You. So it was in the in the middle stages right at the end of our tour. He was still able to make beautiful music and, it's a gift that he's left behind for all generations. I think I'm so. Again, he just amazes me, and I'm so proud of him.
2: We know as as caregivers, Kim, that that role is very, very, very difficult, and we know that it's exhausting, and uh, we know that sometimes caregivers lose themselves in the other person. Uh, How did you manage to to strike a balance when you had some, there were difficult times for you. I know that. I I read some of the things that happened and, you know, you, you had your hands full. So how did you not lose yourself over all this?
5: Yeah. Most people think that dementia or Alzheimer's is just about losing your short term memory, becoming forgetful, but you actually lose your ability to think and reason You lose your ability to communicate verbally or to understand language. It affects your depth perception visually. You can become suspicious and paranoid, and Glenn and many others become combative. So these are very serious things to deal with for caregivers, and emotionally for you as a family member, it's so depressing to see your loved one slipping away like this and to see them struggle and to change and lose lose themselves. So um, I, I became very depressed and joined a support group with other women whose husbands had Alzheimer's, and they were all depressed too. So I decided to start a, a website, and a blog, a lifestyle guide for caregivers called careliving.org to um, put a positive voice out there to try to, to look at the... Um, situation in a positive way to encourage others, and, and um, it helped me. You know, when I feel like I'm helping others, it helps pull me out of the depression and try to bring some kind of purpose out of the tragedy of Alzheimer's, but it is really tough. Another another thing I'm trying to do with care living is to educate caregivers about different care options. There's a, There was stigma attached to Alzheimer's when Glenn was diagnosed, and he helped remove that stigma by being public about it now I'm trying to remove the stigma of long-term care because um, a memory care community is not a nursing home. A nursing home, you know, provides round-the-clock medical care for people that are acutely ill with cancer or or whatever their situation is. They need physical therapy, but a memory care community is just that. It's a community for the whole family because dementia affects the entire family, and it's a place of um, engagement and music therapy, art therapy, pet therapy, and, you know, all these other families are going through the same thing you are, so... We're all there to support each other, to love each other, to lift each other up. And people with dementia can get 24-7 care with, with a team of professionals that know how they're trained, you know, especially for people with dementia. When, when we joined a memory care community, it made all the difference in the world for our whole family. Glenn was much more content and much more at peace and I had other people there to support me and love me through the process. So um I just want people to know that these these care options exist and how great they are. Uh, of course, you know, every community's different, so you have to do the research and you have to look for one that's right for you, but you don't you can't do it alone and you
2: shouldn't think
5: that you have to do it alone there's help out there, and you just need to educate yourself about the resources.
2: And certainly in the coming years, Kim, this will become a topic where more and more families will have this as a reality. I mean, that's demographically just the way it's going to be.
5: Yes, it it absolutely is. It already, there's 5.6 million people with Alzheimer's in the United States and 15 million caregivers, and it's just growing because, you know, the population is continuing to age, and we we haven't found a way to slow it down yet. So I, I definitely am advocating for um, healthy lifestyles, the caregivers are especially at risk for developing dementia because um, they they end up not taking care of themselves, neglecting their own health, exercise, nutrition all of that's really important to um to stave off any kind of disease, but Alzheimer's as well. they do think depression is could um could contribute to you know people developing. Alzheimer's, so it's important to keep your mental health well.
2: You you are obviously working with a foundation, and they're looking towards solutions. Kim, are you seeing anything that you you find to be perhaps some optimism? I, I guess uh, we're looking at early, more of an early diagnosis, which I know people do look at, and then I know that we're looking at some drugs that. Uh, arrest the effects at a certain point And then some that can maybe Peel some of those effects back But uh, this this is a lot of work That they have ahead of them, right?
5: Yeah, there are hundreds of clinical trials Going on around the country And a lot of great companies That are working on finding a cure And so I'm encouraged I I've, I've, I actually went on a trip With Bright Focus down to Houston and, and visited some of the labs down there And met some of the scientists That they were uh, funding And I I was very encouraged, you know, to see such brilliant minds that are on this. Um, They just need more funds to, you know, to keep going until they find a cure. That's
2: Kim Campbell, widow of country music legend Glenn Campbell. She has a blog, careliving.org, that recounts her experiences with her husband's struggle with Alzheimer's disease. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.